Welcome to the Faith and Money Podcast, where listeners are invited to explore the captivating intersection of faith and finances. Leading the way are two remarkable hosts, Keith Conley, President of True Legacy Financial Planning, and Crystal Wampler, President of Can Ethics. Faith and Money explores a diverse array of financial topics, always placing Christ at the center of our discussions. From the basics of budgeting and investing to the transformative power of charitable giving and the dynamics of entrepreneurship, we explore it all. Keith and Crystal invite guests who are thought leaders, financial experts, and individuals who have successfully integrated faith and finances, offering practical tools and inspiring stories to guide you on your own path. If you find the Faith and Money podcast valuable and entertaining, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode, and your rating will help us reach more people, empowering them to align their faith and finances. Now, without any further delay, here's Keith and Crystal. Welcome to our wonderful listeners here at the Faith and Money podcast. We're so glad that you decided to spend some time here with us. I I have another dad joke for my listeners here. Uh, It's very fitting for today's episode. Uh, What do you call, or why did the Christian economist bring a ladder to church? Because he wanted to maximize his investments with a high return on prayer. (laughs) So, you know, Crystal unfortunately isn't here with us today, but hopefully she'll like that dad joke. If you're listening to us for the first time, we welcome you. Uh, we would love for you to subscribe and and to share the podcast with your friends. And we would even love it if you would leave a crazy good review telling us how sophisticated and how wonderful and good looking we are. So uh, without any further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Jerry Boyer. Jerry is the president of Boyer Research and Investment, Macroeconomic Forecasting, and Corporate Engagement and Proxy Consulting Firm. Now, that's a mouthful. Uh, Boyer Research has engaged with publicly traded companies, executing proxy votes at over 2,000 annual meetings and on roughly 20,000 proposals in the past year. He is an opinion columnist for World Opinions, host of Meeting Minds with Jerry Boyer podcast, author of The Maker Versus the Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics, former editor of the Business Channel of the Christian Post, and former host of the Business and the Kingdom podcast on the Edify Podcast Network. Jerry is also the resident economist with Kingdom Advisors. We've all talked about Kingdom Advisors here on the podcast before. He serves as the editor of the board and serves on the editorial board of Salem Communications and a senior fellow in financial economics at the Center for Cultural Leadership. Jerry is the member of the State Financial Officers Foundation National Advisory Committee, and he has been on Forbes.com as a columnist and frequent commentator on Fox Business News, Fox News, and CNBC. He is a contributing editor of the National Review Online, the New York Sun, and the Town Hall Magazine. And he has written for the Wall Street Journal and numerous other publications. And Jerry lives in my home state of Pennsylvania with his wife, Susan. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Keith. Nice to be with you. 
Yeah, you and I have interacted in the past. I've, I've attended very many of, of your monthly marketing or, or monthly market uh, editorials with the Kingdom Advisors organization. So I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, your book, The Makers versus the Takers, I, I've told many people about the book and, I, and I've even gone so far as to say it's the best book that I've read since seminary. Wow. It's, Thank it's you. probably one of the most important, in my opinion. Thank you. It's very kind so, of you. I'm, I'm very excited about our conversation today. So you and I are both involved in the Kingdom Advisors organization, and our listeners have heard a little bit about it. Uh, but tell us a little bit about what it's been, your experience has been within the Kingdom Advisors organization. Well, my experience has been very good. Um, I think I first... Uh, kind of got into the Kingdom Advisors family, I think it was 2009, maybe. Um, and I was brought into that world by my friend Vince Burley from, at that time was with Ronald Blue and Company. Um, and they had me do some uh, some presentations. I think first it started with a champions meeting, which is a smaller group of uh, their donors. And then that and uh, then they ended up having me speak at their um, annual conference where I've spoken every year, I think for the past 10 years at least. Um, and at one point, Rob started to refer to Rob West, who's the president, started to refer to me as uh, quote our resident economist. So um so I, I I don't know what that means, but I'm the resident economist. I, I really like Kingdom Advisors. Kingdom Advisors is not just advisors. It's all Christian financial professionals. So you've got financial advisors, you've got um, financial planners, you've got CPAs, you have you know attorneys, basically anybody who's in, who's uh, you have CFAs, investment managers, etc. Uh, so it is the professional association for Christian financial professionals. Um, I find it to be a very intellectually curious group and spiritually um, energized group. Um, these are, these are people that I really like talking to that are ready to receive, um, and also to share. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the Christian world and the Christian conference world is pretty shallow. Um, and, um, I don't know, maybe it has to be that way. You know, I don't know, but that's the way it is often, <laughs> Um, and I think with Kingdom Advisors, you have people who who want the deeper conversation. Um, and I also like that you have people who aren't church people mainly who want to have the deeper conversation. You can find plenty of Christian conferences for like ordained ministers mm -hmm. who want to have a deeper theological conversation. And that's wonderful. Right. But these people, for the most part, aren't ordained clergy. They're in the marketplace. And to have that deeper conversation going on, you know, with people who are in the marketplace, I I find to be very spiritually encouraging. You know, another similar group would be C12. I just spoke to C12 Network. So there are a few groups out there. There aren't many, but there are groups out there of people who are thoroughly committed to Christ and they want to integrate Christ into their profession, their finance or their business profession, and they want to go deeper. And th those are precious people to find and be around. Um, so I'm very grateful for Kingdom Advisors. I, I find that they're not only intellectually curious and 
they're 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 ready to serve they they want to serve their community they want to serve the lord they want to serve the church and they want to serve their clients well uh mm -hmm. and they do that through this rigorous intellectual uh curiosity on knowing how to better serve their clients uh, yeah and you know, one of the things that occurs to me is you know jesus in the new testament quotes the shema right um, love the Lord, like hero Israel. I mean, he quotes the part, love the Lord, like God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, and in Hebrew, um, it doesn't say mind. Uh, but in the New Testament, Jesus adds the word mind. Um, now, some people say that Jesus is changing it. Um, I think maybe he's explicating it more and making clear that heart and soul that the Hebrew words for heart and soul also include the idea of mind. Uh, and I, I do think that there's a tendency for Christians to think of mind as uh, a bad category, uh, something that, you know, you're supposed to love God with your like emotional life, um, right. but you're not supposed to love God with your mind and that being intelligent uh, and using that intellect to God's glory is, is a bad thing because that's prideful. Well, you can you can be prideful about your superior religious emotions. You can be prideful about your actions. You can be prideful about anything. Uh, um, and it's not that, it's not that God is saying you have to be smart. It's that God is saying whatever smarts I gave you, they're for me. <laughs> and so a lot of times Christians feel like so. I mean, if you're a financial advisor you're a cut above, right? I mean, you have to go through a rigorous uh, you know, system of examination in order to get there. Uh, and there's almost a sense of, well, but you can't be smart when you're a Christian. Um, well, whatever God has given you, whether God has given you an 80 IQ or a 180 IQ, it all belongs to God. Um, and Christian financial professionals, I think, recognize that and they want to be excellent at what they do and so they want to use the gifts that god has given them yeah i think you're exactly right we have this compartmentalization in our in in the church here in america that somehow to be spiritual is better than caring about things of the that are material we have that gnostic mindset of yes jesus good money bad uh, and and the scripture doesn't teach those kinds of things. You know, the, the reason that I'm so excited to have you here, Jerry, is that you and I have so much in common. Uh, you know, we're both from Pennsylvania. Uh, so there's that. But that's just kind of a, a circumstance. But you and I have had both a very high level of, of Christian theological education, but also a very rigorous education in finance. And, and that's just been a really fun uh, way for you and I to connect uh, and have some pretty interesting discussions. The first thing I want to, or the next thing I want to ask you, Jerry, is does the Bible promote a particular view of economics? I think the Bible promotes a worldview that has huge implications for economics. So um, I think the Bible is talking about economics a lot more than the historic the historical theological conversation has given it credit for. Um, so I think theologians think that the Bible talks about theology. And pastors think that the Bible talks about pastoral ministry. And they're right. But economists and financial people 
recognize when they read the Bible that the Bible's also talking about finance and economics and lawyers when they read the, and psychologists. Uh, so um, because because you haven't had this, because most of the Bible conversations have either taken place in the context of the ordained clergy, so it gets very institutional church focused, right? How often do you take communion? What is communion? Who do you baptize? Those are all important questions. But those are questions about what happens inside the four walls of the church. Um, theologians have had discussions about well, how much is the human will free and how much is it predestined and how deep is sin in our nature and what's the nature of salvation? Do we play a role in it or is it monergistic, meaning only the action of God? And that, you know, that, that's fine because we, we want answers to those questions. Uh, but the but, but um, since you, you haven't really had a Christian finance world, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about how much the Bible is talking about, about finance and economics. Um, so that means we're underdeveloped in essentially the theology of money and finance and economics which means that when you go back and you read the church fathers or the medieval schoolmen or the reformers, um, you just don't get a lot of that. I mean, you do get it sort of second and third generation reformation, but those aren't the household names, right? Like the Pierre Vier and people like that. But but they're starting to, like they take Calvin's insights and then they say, well, okay, um, you know, thou shalt not steal. Does that have something to do with inflation? And they, yes, it does. You know, you're violating the commandment, not you violate the eighth commandment when you debase the currency. But there just hasn't been as much of that so that when we open our Bible, we almost have this like this little veil over our our, our face, to use a, an analogy from, from the Bible, where we don't expect to see finance and economics there. And I think my book is basically saying to people who are in the marketplace, this he, this is permission for you to read the economics and finance that's there. Rather than to, when you read a passage, just think about all the sermons you've heard about what that passage means in terms of the order of salvation or predestination or these topics, but also to see that God, that God incarnate in Jesus is actually speaking about economics and finance a lot. And one of the, so part, part of the reason we haven't done much of that is because, again, it's been a church or theology centered discussion. But another reason is because a lot of the economics and finance that's in the Bible depends on historical context. And up until about 1980, we knew almost nothing about the economy of Galilee. We knew almost, when Jesus was in villages, we knew almost nothing about what those villages' economies were like. But because there's an explosion of biblical archaeology in the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the middle of the 20th century tells us a lot about Judea. Uh, and then later, um, the unearthing of Nazareth and Sepphoris in 1980s and 1990s. It's all new. Um, and just like when the church was given the Greek manuscripts and they came into the hands of Erasmus and then of Luther, it caused a theological shift. And then about a century later, when the church got its hands on the Hebrew manuscripts in the Netherlands, that caused a shift. And we began to apply the Bible to society, to the, the nation building. To the marketplace, rule of law, those sorts of things. Just like that happened, now we have another wave of new information. And that means we have to update our theology, not update it for present cultural trend, update it for more information about what the words in the New Testament mean. And when Jesus was in a Bethsaida or a Capernaum or a Bethany or a Bethsaida, 
uh, I guess I mentioned Bethsaida twice, um, or a Nazareth, uh, or a Syrophoenician, what exactly was going on in those economies? And then that puts his statements about money in a different context. And we kind of treat Jesus like it doesn't matter where he is when he talks, but it does matter where he is when it, with the, the, New, the New Testament, the gospel accounts mention specific place names and they mention them for reasons. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. And so if it tells me that Jesus entered Judea and then met a rich young ruler, it matters that he entered Judea. Right. Um, and once we st start to take that into account, we see, I think, a lot more about what's going on in the economics of Jesus. Right. I love I love that point in the Makers versus Takers book. Uh, you know, where when the Bible mentions geography, it's not just a trivia fact. It's not just there to be kind of glossed over. Uh, and it's not even that we should just look on a map and see where it is, but we need to know what was going on in that geographical location compared to the rest of, of the, the biblical world. Uh, and, and, and I love the fact that you pointed out in, in the makers versus the takers that the closer one got to Jerusalem, the, the more critical Jesus became of, of wealthy people. But, the reverse is just as true. The further away that Jesus got away from Jerusalem, the more pro-wealth, pro-money he became. And, and it really brings up kind of my next question here uh, over the centralization of power. Uh, it seems like Jesus's condemnation of, of wealth in the closer you got to Jerusalem was about the centralization of power. Uh, we have a lot of people who, who want to read economics in the Bible to justify all kinds of things like giving away all our money to the poor socialism. Uh, but, but in your book, you argue that the Bible condemns socialization of power. I wanted to know if you could address that. Well, every single confrontation that Jesus has over wealth, he has in geographical proximity to Jerusalem. They're all in Judea. Um, there are zero confrontations over wealth in Galilee. Um, and Jesus grew up near Sepphoris, which had wealthy people. I mean, they've unearthed a mansion uh, with a uh, famous um, mosaic that they call the Mona Lisa of Sepphoris. And there are luxury items there. Uh, you know, there are combs that are only people who are wealthy would be able to afford. Sepphoris was the financial capital. They called it the, the the jewel or the gem of Galilee. It was the financial capital of Galilee. Jesus was an hour and a half or two hours walk from there. In, in, in many ways, Nazareth is almost like not an independent town, but more like an exurb of, you know, a, a bedroom community, as it were, of Sepphoris. Uh, and Sepphoris was rebuilt. It, they they had revolted when Herod the Great died. Uh, Rome destroyed them, um, and they were rebuilt after that. So during Jesus's working years, as a you know older child and and as a teenager, basically until about I think we maybe well we don't know his exact dates, but let's say until he's about 15, 16, 17 years old, the greatest building boom of Israel at the time, other than the temple, was taking place an hour and a half's walk from Nazareth. It's inconceivable that Joseph and Son Building Company 
would not have participated in that. I mean, how, uh, you know, we, we kind of think of, of, of Joseph as being a kind of a country village uh, carpenter. I'm sorry, there's just only so many doors to repair and chairs to repair and um, ox yokes to repair. There's just not enough to keep a, a, a builder, a, a carpenter like that busy. They were traveling, they were itinerants. Uh, they were traveling artisans. So Jesus would have been exposed to all of that, which means Jesus would have been around wealthy people. But we have no condemnations of wealth in Galilee. Galilee was a lower tax jurisdiction, a flatter hierarchy jurisdiction, more small business, more entrepreneurial, more industrial. Down south, the big industry was the temple and the government, just like in Washington, D.C., I mean, Washington D.C. has it's it's a you know it's a company town, and the company is the government. Now I understand there's dry cleaners and restaurateurs, but they're all there to serve people who either work for government or people who work trying to influence the government. You take the seat of government out of Washington D.C. and it's a ghost town, right? Uh, I mean, now you have people who are welfare recipients. You have an underclass, but uh, in terms of you know, if you take that away, th there's there's just no economy at all. I mean, it was. You know, it was a swamp before and it would be a swamp again. Uh, some would argue it never stopped being a swamp. Um, so, you know, so Jesus doesn't have any confrontations with wealth, even though there are wealthy people. Uh, then he goes south to Judean region, confrontation with the rich young ruler, confrontation with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and confrontation with the money changers. Um, and uh, that that pattern is universal. There's no exceptions. Even the power, even the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel, which the indication is the Sermon on the Plain is given more to a Judean audience. Uh, even, even those variations, you there's a condemnation of wealth in the Sermon on the Plain, woe unto you who are rich. There isn't a condemnation of wealth in the Sermon on the Mount, which is more like the whole nation. Um, and by the way, he doesn't say, some people say, you know, woe unto the rich. No, woe unto you, rich. He's addressing the ruling class of Judea. And there's also Tyronians and Sidonians, and they're the central bankers basically for, for the, for the, for Judea. So that I think is strongly suggestive that the problem isn't wealth itself, but the problem is the extraction of wealth, the taking of wealth using political power that Jesus is condemning. So what I'm hearing from you, Jerry, is that God cares about how we build our wealth. Yes. Yes, absolutely. If if I'm producing some service or, or producing a widget that's bringing value to my neighbor and I become wealthy, Jesus doesn't condemn that. No. He had plenty of opportunities to. They they did make widgets in Galilee. They made stone jars, for example. There was that was a center of industry. We see that in the wedding of Cana. There's reasons why that was a booming industry. Uh, also, fishermen and fishermen could get fairly wealthy. You know, um, Magdala is a fairly wealthy fishing village because these aren't subsistence fishermen. They're 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 catching and drying or fermenting for export. So this is industrial. There was industry. Um, feeding people fish is an honest living. Uh, Nazareth was an olive town. Um, olive oil is an honest living. Making stone jars is an honest living. Tax collectors accusing people 
um, and using it to say, basically use the first century equivalent of civil asset forfeiture to take people's wealth fraudulently is not an honest living. And so we see John the Baptist preaches the baptism of repentance. Well, what does he talk about? It's all economics. People who want to turn down the economics of the Bible, I have to explain to me, I mean, was nobody committing adultery? You know, it, was nobody um, there a drunkard? Was nobody committing acts of idolatry? I mean, all the sins were present. But when when God sends the forerunner ahead, the voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, there's there's a generosity thing. If you've got two cloaks, give to someone who has none. And then he goes right after the tax collectors. Goes right, they're, they're takers. And then the soldiers, he, John doesn't have to address the soldiers. The soldiers understand if he just condemned the tax collectors for taking more than is legal, we know that he's got something to say to us because we're the enforcers, we're the hired thugs. So then the tax, so then the soldiers say to John, what about us? Right. And so he's telling the tax collector and the enforcement mechanism of the, of the soldiers, don't accuse people falsely to defraud and take, you know, and, and, uh, and, and take more than is due. So essentially, Jesus, uh, John comes right out of the gate going after the ruling class elite and their extractive economy. Uh, as the chief thing to repent of. Right. The, the, the church has a priority on, on preaching the gospel. But, you know, as you were saying earlier, the Bible teaches a lot more than just how to be saved for our sins. It, it teaches a, a whole way of life of what it means to be an image bearer of God and, and how the renew transforming the renewing of our minds in Christ changes our perception of the cultural mandate. Uh, we are required by God because we are his chosen people who to uh, be his image bearers in, in Christ to influence our vocation, to, to influence our, our family life and the way we raise our children. Right. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, uh, Abraham Kuyper's words of, of, you know, every square in inch belongs to Christ. Right. Uh, and I think we're doing a disservice by not teaching the whole counsel of God, which is, you know, certainly the ordo salutis, you know, the order of salvation and, and eschatology. Those are immeasurably valuable teachings, but we need to be contact teaching those in the context of what does it mean to live as a Christ follower in this world in every aspect of our life. Right. Um, and maybe we need to broaden our understanding of what gospel means. What is it? What is a euangelion? I mean, the, the word gospel, good news, um, it has a Jewish context before Jesus in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it also had a pagan context. And both of them were very comprehensive. Um, it, a, the gospel never meant just personal salvation. When Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What is the good news? Our God reigns, right? So the good news is God is the king of the universe. Therefore, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to be taken care of here on earth. 
And after you die, you're going to be taken care of. And then you're going to be resurrected. And there's going to be a new heaven and earth. God's in charge of everything. You're If you're aligned with him, if you are allegiant to him, you're, everything's going to be okay. Um, and that, so, and in the Roman world, a euangelion was when the emperor was born or the emperor ascended or the emperor's birthday, there would be, it was the announcement of a new emperor. That's what it got. That's what the gospel was. So the word that we translate as gospel in the context of first century Rome is the announcement of a new emperor. So when John preaches a gospel of repentance, making way, of making a straight path for the Lord, then Jesus comes and preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom is that he's the king. <laughs> so the gospel of the kingdom is we have a new emperor and he's in charge of everything. And at some point, I've seen sometimes like people online, there's people like, but for instance, someone like a John MacArthur will say, well, the church has to preach the gospel and stay out of politics. I'm sorry, if, whatever you think gospel means, that's not what gospel means. Gospel gospel never in the in the Bible meant only personal salvation because because they already it wasn't news the jews already had forgiveness of sins you could already go to the temple and make your sacrifices the psalms talk about forgiveness of sins there was nothing new about forgiveness of sins and i understand that forgiveness of sins is based on jesus's atoning work that we see in the new testament but they already knew about forgiveness of sins there was a, that was already covered here's what's new God is now emperor of the world and taking up residence and, and now is going to subdue all enemies under his feet. That's the newness. That's It's not news to say your sins can be forgiven. It's news that the king has arrived. And, and, and to add on to that, Jerry, he has a, he, God is king and he has arrived and he's recreating the world ruined by the fall. Yes. The son of, the son of, God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Do we think I, that that's only hell? Um, I just did a presentation for a group of CEOs, and I looked at um, 300 years ago, the infant mortality rate was 44%. That's a work of the devil. One of the blessings when biblical understand economics began to be understood is that's gone from one in, one every out of every two children, two in the developed world, so infinitesimally small. That's a destruction of the work of the devil. Going from a life expectancy of 35 to 80 is destroy, you know, premature death is a work of the devil. Um, the you know, theft, the, the people using their power to shut down an economy, people using their power to extract wealth from other people. That those are works of the devil. The first thing is a new heart. But that's not the last thing. <laughs> that, that new that has to flow out into everything. As Americans, we think very individualistically. It's about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. It's about the forgiveness of my sins. And those those things have their place. But by and large, the Bible teaches that God is uniting his people together with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And, and at the end of the day, yes, we get our sins forgiven, but we get God. Right. We get God. Right. He is ours and we are his. And that is the power of the gospel. It's not fire insurance as we get God. Yes. The king of the universe who's holy and good and righteous and, right. and all of his character. And we, we, we get to be his child. Uh, and we get a new way of living. 
Yes. Yeah. So, you know, as I, as I've been telling people, if you want an MBA, just read the book of Proverbs. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, Jesus has so much to teach us about investments and, 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 you know, the book of Proverbs has so much to teach us about money and wealth. Uh, and so I want to go back to Jesus's story or the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, you know, Jesus told the rich young ruler to give away everything that he had. And for the benefit of our, our listeners, is that prescriptive for every for, for modern day believers? Are we required to give everything we have in order to follow Jesus? Well, it wasn't even prescriptive for every first century believer. Um, I think it was prescriptive for anybody of whom it could be said that everything they had had been taken from somebody else. Uh, of this, this, I mean, the, this man's story would have been familiar to the readers of the time. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler. Why do we always skip over the fact that he's a ruler? Um, he did not accumulate wealth over a lifetime. You didn't have tech entrepreneurs, right? So he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler, which means he has inherited his dad's Senate seat, his Sanhedrin seat. Um, that's why it's interesting. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He thinks of it as an inheritor. That's, a, that's an insight from my wife, Susan, who, who noticed that. Um, he So Jesus says, you know the commandments. And then he lists the commandments. And one of the commandments he listed is do not defraud. But do not defraud is not one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not bear false witness are commandments. But do not defraud is not one of the commandments. So I would suggest that, you know, Jesus knows the Ten Commandments. He didn't have a memory lapse in which he kind of, oh, the fraud, is that in there? Yeah, probably. Um, but that the reason he's mentioning defrauding to this young man is because that is exactly the business model of a member of the Sanhedrin. It's based on fraud. Um, and Jesus is either Jesus's disciple or brother, James. People can debate about who wrote the book of James. Um, I've always believed it was his brother, uh, Jeff Meyer's new commentary on James makes a pretty good case that it was G that it was James the son of Zebedee, but whoever you think it is, when he writes not too much later uh, about Christians who are basically kind of sycophantic towards the rich ruling class, he said, "Do not rich men defraud you and drag you before the judgment seats." And he's using the same Greek word there, "aphistereo." So, you know. James is making clear that for the ruling class of Jerusalem, fraud was the business model. It's not like, oh, I'm doing businesses and there's a little something on the side. The business, you know, Tony Soprano's business model is not running a restaurant, right? The restaurant is a front for something else. Okay. So the, you know, the money changers, that whole system had a religious and political front for what is essentially a fraud business. That's the way James describes it as an endemic to the class. So yeah, people say that Jesus is redistributing. I'm sorry. The, 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 it had already been redistributed. It had already been redistributed from the poor and middle class to the ruling class. This is more like restitution than redistribution. Give it back, I think, is the nature of the commandment. And I would say that to anybody. Anybody who's if if you if you went into Congress with five thousand dollars in the bank and you come out of Congress with fifty million dollars in the bank, uh, nobody thinks that you're an investment genius. You used your connections to do that. Give it back. 
It's not really yours. Uh, so I would say that for all rich young rulers of that time, but Joseph of Arimathea, the tin merchant, at least according to Eusebius, the church historian, wealthy man, you know, um, Nicodemus, another one, Jesus never tells them to give it all away. I mean, uh, you know, Joseph gives it to, gives his, his, um, his grave to Jesus. Um, so he, he has that. He's a wealthy individual, but Jesus never said, you have to give all that away. Why? Because at least if the early church historians are right, he made it honestly. It was an exception. There were a few righteous people in the Sanhedrin. Um, and he never you never see him say anywhere in Galilee, Bethsaida, Capernaum, or Magdala, give it back. Mary of Magdalene, wealthy town, he never says to her, give it back. Um, because fishing is an honest profession. Uh, but shaking people down is not an honest profession. Uh, last week, I, I attended a, a gala dinner for an organization here on the West Coast called the Center for Faith and Work. And, you know, I'm talking and I'm mingling with the people at my table. And after the event was over, the waiter who was our server pulled me to the side and he really wanted me to join his cause because I'm a finance guy and he's involved with some organization that is intending to confront the 1% and to uh, and to bridge the gap between wage disparity between billionaires and the, the common worker. And I told him, I'm sorry, I, I can't join your cause. We right. can talk about all the, the complexities of, you know, billionaires and how they accumulate your wealth but at the end of the day i just used the example of jeff bezos jeff bezos has provided a valuable service for the poor who can't afford a car right he he has provided the ability for for people who are too sick to travel to get their prescriptions to get their medications and he's provided a market to poor people around the world who can sell products in the marketplace to us. Exactly. And and he should be able to profit from that because other people are benefiting from his service. And I used that example with that young man. And he was shocked that I wasn't ready to jump on his cause. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I'm. it's not the 1%. It's which 1%? Um Right. And so what, what people who are going after the 1% want to be doing is they're, I think they're going after marketplace winners. Right. And what are they going to do? They give more power to the state, which means they're giving more power to rich young rulers. It's fascinating how often the story, the account of the rich young ruler is used by people who want to make rich young rulers even more ruler and even more rich. Um, yes. Not you know, you know, by giving power to senators, because that's what an archon is. Basically, a, a rough translation would be a senator. Um, right. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic um, when if you're talking about some of the large money center banks that have benefited so much from Fed easy money. You know, yes. they're almost like quasi government institutions. And you did have that relationship with Tyre and Sidon and Jerusalem. Um, so you did have kind of central bankers. Um, who benefited from that monopoly. I think you see that most in the in the uh, account of the money changers. 
in essence, they have a government granted monopoly and fixed prices. And the prices, the exchange rate is fixed at a non-honest parity. So people go to the temple and when they pay their temple tax, when they pay their half temple, half shekel temple tax, they have to use a whole shekels worth of denarius to get a half shekel to pay the tax. So they're paying twice as much silver as is required under Torah uh, in order to do that. So there's an upsell that is legally locked in. Um, so that's the coercive power of the state. Um, so, you know, were there other money changers on the way to the temple? No, because there was a monopoly in the temple. So would Jesus have been upset with the money changers if they were giving honest change? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus never said that there shouldn't be a temple system. I mean, he 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 hints that it's going to be done away with. But at that time, there was a temple system in place. He was under Torah. He was born under the law. Um, so he so the problem isn't that people were going there to buy sheep and uh, and 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 doves. That's not the problem. The problem is they were being ripped off when they do it, and that's I think why Jesus turns over the tables. Yeah, so we're nearing the end of our conversation, sadly. But I, the last question I wanted to ask you, Jerry, what are some basic principles that Christians should use when investing? Well, a good question. Um, the the approach that that I've taken is to focus on whether there is principle adherence um, in the environments in which you're investing, and I don't mean values alignment. That's a different thing. In other words, I'm not saying that if a company doesn't share your values, like you mentioned Amazon, you know, Amazon, basically with their smile program, they said, you can't give to Alliance Defending Freedom. They're a hate group. Well, not aligned with those values, right? But Amazon is aligned with the value of human productivity, whether they give the glory to God or not, there's a productivity. Okay. So when making allocation decisions, I ask, which country are we talking about? and um, would tend to lean into countries that have better rule of law, more sound money, flatter taxes, more pro-growth policies. When making company selections, uh, I would tend to lean into companies that have a history of high productivity and governance structures, which put the shareholder first, as opposed to self-dealing boards. There's a lot of, you can have situations where, where the CEO is also the chairman and he's his own boss. And, you know, there's a, the, the shareholders don't have, you know, uh, there's like two dual shares and the shareholders can't vote. So I tend to lean against, I'm not saying you never invest in companies like that, but it's more like a leaning for or against. I tend to like, you know, companies that have better governance. D D uh, diversification is clearly a biblical principle, which is basically humility written into our investment strategy. I would say the other thing is don't follow the mob. So people who tend to invest in things that go up a lot because they went up a lot, uh, that is generally over the long run tends to be a losing strategy. Changing strategies, being an unstable man, being a, a you know di a two a two two mind double minded man who's unstable in all his ways. So I think I'm going to try value investing for a while. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I think I'll try momentum investing for a while. Oh, that's not working. Oh, I think I'll try cap weight. You know, they get they change all the time. Right. Um. They so they end up often abandoning a strategy just at the time when the strategy is about to start working. So I'd say really almost any consistent investment uh, uh, philosophy works 
So if you're a value investor, I mean, there's evidence that value investing works over the long term. Um, I'm not saying everyone has to be a value investor, but I'm saying is if you're a value investor, except when it's painful, you are very likely to underperform if you're switching your, your policy. So pretty much a consistent policy, any of the sound, basic, consistent policies beats do-it-yourself or emotion-driven investing. But if we want to get more advanced than some of these things that I said about governance, you know, you can kind of lean into those things. But the other thing is like focusing really hard on beating the market, I think is really, I mean, it's good to have a good investment philosophy, but basically you're eking out small differences, you know, um, unless you're making wild moves going against your advisor's advice. If you have a philosophy and you stick with it, then be frugal, right? Be disciplined, stick to your philosophy. And that's over the long run tends to be a winning strategy. Um, and don't make it about ego and don't go to the country club and say, here's my quarterly. What's your quarterly? Oh, it doesn't work. Well, I'm going to fire this manager. That's almost co that covet driven stuff, you know, uh, to me is a losing strategy. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that your, your, your message about staying the course with your strategy, it seems like with just about anything in life, whether it's, you know, for me as a business owner, you know, my marketing strategy or my my client acquisition strategy, my client process strategy, um, you know, your, or, you know, if it's something personal, your weight loss strategy or, or whatever it is, we tend to fail because we give up too soon. Yes. <laughs> Just about the time that it's about to, to really work we jump to the next thing on our list. Yeah, so and market commentators call that capitulation. And there really is something to that, that um, if you have, let's say a quality strategy, you you want high quality companies, meaning earnings growth. Well, if that under underperforms for a while and it's painful and you give in, people, retail investors who are do-it-yourselfers tend to give in at exactly the worst moment to whatever they're... Now, maybe you have a value strategy, not growth. That's fine. You you will tend to give in. Principles are there for when it's hard. They're not there for when it's easy. Nobody is tempted to change strategies when things are going well. They're tempted to change strategies when things are going badly. But we know that there's negative serial correlation between strategies. So that a value strategy... If a value strategy didn't work for the past two years, it is significantly more probable that it will work for the next two years uh, or growth strategy or whatever. Um, and that's, we, we're driven by human emotions. And that's, I think what James, I mean, James isn't talking about investment or you could almost argue he's talking about the investment of your whole life, you know, in which community you're part of. Um, and that back and forthness is, and that's why at least I saw a study a while ago, if you take a hundred people, you know, one to a hundred, and um, you look at the middle person with a DIY investment strategy, someone who's like a day trader, that 50th person is losing money right. <laughs> uh, or at least significantly underperforming. Uh, so, I mean, you don't do your own doctoring. I don't think you should do your own. We have a financial advisor um, and my financial advisor says his main job isn't to give us super secret financial advisor advice that's the secret sauce. It's basically, to keep, it's, a, it's more like a coach. Stay with it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's underperformed. Stay with it. 
We've got a plan. Stick with the plan. Well, as Ben Graham said, you know, the 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 goal of investment management isn't to chase returns, it's to manage risk. Yes. Um, so, Jerry, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to really in, enjoy this time together. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I if you haven't already, uh, for our listeners, I really highly recommend that you check out Jerry's book, The Maker Versus the Takers. Uh, a lot of the concepts that we discussed in today's episode are found in that book. That book has personally revolutionized how I have seen things uh, from a biblical perspective in regards to money, wealth, and generosity, uh, in how I see uh, government and politics, and how I see you know a lot of life. It, it's really been transformative, and, and uh, I thank you so much for that work, Jerry. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. Soli Deo Gloria. So uh, if, if you haven't already, please don't forget to give us five stars and to subscribe and perhaps share the podcast with a friend and an enemy too, if you think about it. Uh, until next time, uh, God bless. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Faith and Money Podcast. But remember, our conversations don't end here. We invite you to continue exploring these fascinating subjects by subscribing to our podcast. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode, ensuring that you stay connected to our community of like-minded individuals seeking wisdom and guidance in their financial and spiritual lives. And while you're at it, don't forget to rate and review the Faith and Money podcast. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also allows others to discover and benefit from these enriching discussions. Your words have the power to inspire and empower others to embark on their own journeys toward financial well-being and spiritual fulfillment. Lastly, we want to extend a heartfelt invitation to join us for future episodes. We have exciting guests lined up who will share their unique perspectives and experiences. Together, we'll continue to dive deeper, challenge conventions, and uncover hidden truths that can transform our lives for the better.